Father, we come before you as believers in Jesus Christ. Some gather here today as seekers of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we come one year after the first Easter where we've ever experienced in our lifetime the church being closed in terms of a physical gathering. And Lord, as we gather here both physically and those who are joining with our live stream, Lord, we know how desperately we need the hope of the resurrection. We pray, Lord, for one of our ministry and mission partners, the Mennonite Hospital in, in Taiwan. And uh, we, we know, Lord, because of what happened there, that there were uh, close to 51 deaths suffer, uh, suffered this week over a tragedy. And so, Lord, our hearts are with our missionary doctors and our medical personnel out there. Lord, but that's just one place. Our hearts cry out to Christians in Myanmar. Our hearts continue to go out for uh, anyone who has suffered the loss of a loved one. Our hearts continue to go out for those who have suffered uh, other ailments and other persecutions. And so, Lord, we come to you knowing that in Christ we have not just a Savior, but a risen Lord, a Lord who lives and walks with us daily. Lord, I pray, Lord, that Jesus would be the center today, that Christ would be proclaimed, that Christ would be exalted. And I pray, Lord, especially a prayer of thanksgiving for anyone, again, who's visiting with us, who does not yet worship you as their Lord. Lord, we're thankful that they're here. We pray, Lord, that they would hear the good news that Christ is risen indeed. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we mentioned, this year especially, Easter 2021, we place our hope in the resurrected Christ. This is a time where we need hope beyond any type of justice that any human agency can offer. No one will deny, I don't think there's any of us, that will deny that evil exists. Just in these past few weeks, we've seen, just in a handful of a few weeks, three mass types of shootings, murder. And whenever there are clear acts of evil, justice means that the one who did evil must pay for their sin. That's the cry of the human heart. As Christians, theologically, we call this atonement for sin. So stick with me on this because this is right in line with Easter. We call this atonement for sin. Atonement means that we look to a source of authority. We look as Christians to God. We look and we hope because there's this innate desire for justice where when wrong is done, we cry out, Lord, something has to be made right. Justice needs to be satisfied. And we, we, we use a fancy word called atonement, but it just means that whoever did evil must pay for their sin. But not only that, but when we look at natural evil, so whenever you look at a natural disaster, I think that, sure, we can say, well, that's just human nature. That's just mother nature. A lot of people lost their lives. Innocent children died. People died because of a hurricane, an earthquake, or a fire. But at the end of the day, you look at that and you say, wait, there's something morally wrong there. When you see a bunch of bodies laid out there dead out of natural disaster, you and I can say that no human caused this. So who do we blame? But think about the human heart. We look to God, right? So at the end of the day, we, we look for some moral agency because we see that even natural disaster has a moral context to it, which points us back that there has to be some form of justice that's greater than what any government or any human agency can offer. And we look and cry for atonement even for natural disaster. And so our hearts cry, and then that leads us to 2020. We look at the pandemic. We look at COVID-19. And even if we cannot physically blame one human being for this thing, and we can say that it's disease, and disease is a natural course of, of life, and as Christians we believe that this is caused by the fall of man, but at the end of the day, you see something evil about it. Even if it's different from a moral agency of a human committing a murder, you look at COVID-19, you say there's something evil about it. And again, if you're a non-Christian, then you look up and you say, God, 
There has to be someone. There has to be an eternal being, an eternal force, someone. And you and I, we know that there is a personal God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, bore the suffering, could relate to human suffering in the deepest sense of suffering, and he's risen indeed. So the hope for all natural and moral evil is the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we, we say, just like what Paul said, that it is hopeless. But today I want you to see something deeper. I want you to see that there's more than atonement. Atonement is necessary, but the hope requires more. Hope beyond the justice of atonement is the power of Jesus' resurrection. You don't hear me. Christ is risen. The sun is risen, but some of y'all still asleep. You're sitting in your cars asleep. I don't hear the amens. I don't hear it, but I'm preaching to somebody this morning. I am preaching. I am preaching to every Christian martyr. Christians that have been martyred throughout history. Christians who have lost their lives. People who love Jesus, but they've been persecuted and pressed down by the Roman Empire or later on by an unjust government. They didn't live long enough to ever see atonement at a human level happen. Meaning if even the kings or the individuals who committed crimes against them were eventually put in prison or given the death penalty they didn't get to see it they didn't live live life so you consider the shootings if you have somebody who is a christian that was shot and murdered and died and you look at their family members their family members might be able to see justice in their day but the person who lost their life the the nine-year-old child in orange county that was murdered if that person's a believer, they never get to live to see justice. So what I'm trying to tell you is any human agency of justice is lacking. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am preaching this morning to the aborted fetuses who don't have a chance to even live. So they will not see any prosecution or any justice in their lifetime. I am preaching to the Israelites who cried out in Egypt. And they cried out, God, please keep your promise. I'm talking about the faithful ones who trusted in the promises that God made to them. And they kept their faith in Egypt. And their blood was shed on that dirt. And they died. And they never lived long enough to see Moses lead the Israelites across the Red Sea. They didn't make it. Where is the justice for them? Again, I'm preaching to somebody this morning. I don't hear the amens. But I will say that I am flanked by all of these martyrs and saints. I am flanked this morning by the aborted fetuses as we preach to you the chorus, the eternal chorus, that in heaven today they, ha- they will say justice has been vindicated Not because Jesus died, but because Christ is risen indeed. That is the gospel of the saints. That is the gospel that has been passed down from generations. That is the gospel that no pandemic could kill. That is the gospel that we proclaim this morning. Can I get an amen? At least one? I just want you to be alive today. Because I know we're Baptists, but Jesus is alive. It is a living gospel that we preach. You see, the resurrection gives us eternal hope. Let me put it another way. The resurrection tells a story of what happens after the atonement. We ask, what would give power for an individual who lost a loved one due to a serious crime, evil committed towards them, they will never see their child again, they will never see their parents again, they will never see their loved one again, how do you give them any counsel? How can they ever come to forgive and desire to reconcile? And that goes back to Israel. In the Old Testament, how could Israel ever forgive the enemy nations that oppressed them and persecuted them and crushed them down, raped their wives, killed their children, killed their families? 
how could you ever tell the Israelites to love the Gentiles and to reconcile with the nations? In the same way, the hope and the answer is not in Israel, but is in, in Israel's resurrected Messiah. In the same way, how could any Christian or anybody who loves God forgive someone? Well, we know the answer. It is not just in the atonement. The atonement satisfied, but, but it doesn't satisfy or replace the life that was taken. It's only because we believe that those who have Christ are living eternally. And again, there is hope. There is ability beyond the act of justice, beyond atonement. You see, the human world, the, the world that we live in, they just ask for justice. They just want atonement to be made. They just want payment. But payment does not make you whole. Payment's just 50%. And that's why on Good Friday, it was only 50% of the good news. 50%. Good Friday, we preached that Christ was, was uh, crucified for our sins, died in our place. He was crucified, died for our sins. But that's not the good news. That's 50%. The good news is that any man could have died. Any man could have said he's the Messiah. Any man could have said he's the Son of God and died and remained in the grave. And he would have just been another charismatic personality. He would have just been another man who gathered the following. Just another man. His promises, the words of a man. But it is the resurrection that makes Christ the word of God. Can I get an amen? It is the word of God that we look at today. The reason why word took on flesh is because that flesh was once again put on the word when he resurrected. So that when he said, I'm going to die for your sins and I'm going to rise from the dead. And we laugh and we say, like the mockers, bring yourself down from that cross. And he says, I will in my time. And when he comes back up, it's because he resurrected that everything that he taught we believe it's true. Without the resurrection, the Old Testament that he affirmed, we can't say that it's true. All of his miracles, all of his promises, all of his teachings, everything that he affirmed and that he taught to his apostles is only true because he resurrected. And that resurrection gives us the ability to believe that God is real. And it also allows us to understand that, yes, we've been forgiven and therefore, we can forgive and we can reconcile because we have first been reconciled to God. We've been brought into the presence of God because of the resurrection. So that's the testimony that we testify this morning. The title of this morning's message is very simple. It's the testimony of the Son of God. My aim this morning is to preach the gospel. My aim this morning is to have a conversation, especially with anybody who does not know Jesus. My aim this morning is to have a conversation with any of you who might think that you know Jesus, but 2020 or 2021 has revealed to you that you need a resurrection in your heart, and maybe that's why you're here this morning. That is my aim. Point number one this morning is the testimony of Jesus. I want you to take God's word, and I want you to take it and turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 12. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 12. Again, the title of the sermon is just what the text says. It's the testimony of the Son of God. Basically, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He went to the cross, crucified as the Son of Man. He rose again from the grave as the Son of God. Please look with me now at verses 6 to 8. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. It says this. The Apostle John wrote, This is he who came by water. And blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So you see repeated, water, blood, and the Spirit. Now why did I choose this text? I chose this text because, one, it presents the gospel. It presents the need for Jesus as a man, the need for Jesus, his blood and his atonement, and because we had baptism today. That's what the water symbolizes. And then we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Atonement, blood, presence. This is the perfect passage to explain some very difficult theological concepts, but to break it down in easy form for anybody who wants to know a complete picture of what, why Jesus had to come, why he had to live a perfect life, why this sinless Savior submitted himself 
unto perfect obedience so that he can go to the cross as the perfect obedient man, but really the Son of God, and then why he had to die and be risen again by the power of the Spirit. First, let me explain. Jesus Christ came by water and blood. Water refers here to Jesus' baptism, and blood refers to his death. Water and blood symbolize two terminal points in Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus began his ministry with his baptism, and the Spirit was involved every step of the way. Jesus did not have to get baptized. Y'all understand that. That baptism, when John the Baptist came around baptizing, Matthew chapter 3, verse 14 tells us this reality that John, he tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. So he sees the Son of God. At this point, nobody knows who Jesus is, really. He was just this boy who grew up Joseph and Mary's son, who grew up a carpenter. And he was walked around, and here he comes, Jesus of Nazareth. He comes walking, and John sees him from afar. And John sees him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, this is going to be the sacrificial lamb. This is the one who's going to die. His sacrifice is going to pay for the sins of the world. This is the one. This is the Messiah. John the Baptist knew very clearly. He knew who Jesus was before most people could even grasp an idea of, of who Jesus was. And so as Jesus approaches, and John has been baptizing people, preparing people for the Messiah, and he's baptizing them as a symbol of repentance. What, is, what does baptism even mean? When you go under the water, I want you to think of Noah's flood. I want you to think of Jonah, and Jonah's running from God. And God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy everybody on this boat unless you jump into the water. And I'm going to save you by putting you in a belly's whale. That's not just a fable. That's real history. And God preserves Jonah through the water. God doesn't just remove him from water. He says, Jonah, you're going through the water, but I'm, I'll put you in the, the belly of a whale. And, he, and, and same thing for Noah. Noah, I'm not going to supernaturally take you to Mars. You, you, okay, so Noah, you go chill with Elon Musk on Mars while, while I do this judgment. No, 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 no. That's not what happened, right? It says, Noah, I'm going to put you in an ark, but you're going to go through the flood. When Moses led by the power of God, led his people up to the Sea of Reeds, we call it the Red Sea. And God doesn't say, I'm going to take you around the sea. He says, I'm going to take you right through it. You're going to go through those judgment waters, and those waters are going to come down on the Egyptian army. And so you see this pattern throughout the whole history that the only way that God takes his people is through the judgment, but he finds a way to deliver them through the judgment. And so when you go under the water and you come out of the water, it symbolizes that with Christ, buried with Christ, under the judgment waters, your sins are forgiven as he died. Union with Christ. He was your substitute. You were with him on the cross. Your sins, my sins. And as he comes up to new life, he brings you through the water. He doesn't bring you around the water. He doesn't take you out of the water. He doesn't put you on a little floaty. He puts you through the judgment waters. And you come out alive in Christ. And so when Jesus went to get baptized, he was sinless. He didn't have to go through the, the judgment waters, but nobody knew that he would. He would. So his baptism is not only a foretaste of what he would do. So here you have a sinless guy go up to be baptized. And John recognizes that. And John's saying, Jesus, you're sinless. I need to be baptized by you. You're asking me to baptize you? No, I can't. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And Jesus says, no, do it. Do this for it is right because Jesus perfectly obeys. He doesn't ask us to do. He commands us to be baptized. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he first would not do himself. And so he would go to the cross and bear our sins. And so at his baptism... You have the heavens open up, and you have God from heaven announce, uh, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased. And it says that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, came upon Christ. 
So the Spirit was involved. And so the water symbolized his baptism. And it symbolized his baptism, which was the beginning of his earthly ministry. Not the beginning of his life, but the beginning of his earthly ministry, where the culmination of his ministry would be the resurrection, right? But it would be to go to the cross and then to die and then to rise again as a perfect, obedient, sinless son of man who was the son of God. Now, let's look at blood. Why does he connect blood? You understand here that it is necessary for atonement to be made. Jesus had to be perfectly sinless. He was perfectly obedient because in order for him to pay for our sins, he needed to be sinless. But he needed to be 100% man. He couldn't, he couldn't have just, he couldn't have not taken on human flesh. In order for him to pay for the sins of humanity, he needed to be 100% man, yet 100% God. And so atonement had to be made. Bloodshed. I mentioned in our illustration in the beginning that there's this innate inward desire for us that when someone commits evil, that in our hearts what satisfies wrath and righteous indignation is that that person who committed sin pays for their sin. That I Again, I explained that idea as atonement. That innate nature was put into us by God. And so that's why we all kind of understand. Now, you might deny it. You might not want to believe it. But if we've, if there is a God, that's why people don't want to believe that there is a God. Because if there is a God, and if we've sinned, then we need to pay for our sins to someone. To someone, right? And that is atonement for our sins is required. Let's look at blood. Jesus would ultimately identify with us by taking our place on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And in the Old Testament is just a symbol. God wanted to dwell among his people, but he couldn't because his wrath needed to be satisfied. There was a, a, a gap between a holy God and sinful humanity. Reconciliation was not yet possible because God is perfect. He's holy. It would be unjust for him to have fellowship with evil and sinners without atonement. So he set up this system early on, starting with the tabernacle, which is a, a portable tent. You can't find it at REI. You can find it in the Old Testament. And it was this tent that wherever Israel went in the wilderness as they traveled, it would go with them. And only, only the chosen leader of God could go in and have fellowship with God and to symbolically see God face to face. And, and it would contain the Ark of the Covenants. It would contain what was holy. And it was just symbolic. And wherever that tent went, it was just a symbol. God's, God is spirit. God is not finite. He's infinite. He's way bigger than all of the solar system, the entire universe. You can't contain God in a tent. Are you joking me? It was just a symbol. It was just a symbol that God, in, a, in an accommodation would come down and dwell with us. You see where we're pointing towards Jesus? God is so much more infinite. But in an accommodation, he says, you know, I'll, I'll come and dwell with you guys. But if you, but if you want me to dwell with you, atonement needs to be made. And then they set up a sacrificial system where God is so good. When the Israelites sinned, instead of saying what I think you and I would say is fair, and there's a place for this in the Old Testament law. If you take someone's life, it's only fair the capital punishment, right? That your life be taken. But if you steal something, it is unjust that your life be taken. You see? I mean, all of us understand this. If you steal something, like you steal chapstick from the drugstore, and they give you the death penalty, most of you would say, no, that's not right. Let's give that person another chance. Okay, let's talk about this. Let's pay a fine. Okay, let's talk about this. Community service, let's talk about this. But if someone goes into somewhere and starts, let's just use the illustration, shooting someone in an office place, you and I would say, okay, death penalty, if it's proven that he did it, which it shows it, death penalty is fair, right? But look how good God is, is that the Israelites... They were so sinful, constantly idolatrous, constantly in their hearts murderers. These would be the same people that their sons would murder Jesus later on. right? These would be the people who, the only reason why they were good, they were no better than the Egyptians, is just that they weren't in a position of power. 
Because once you give the Israelites a position of power, they turn away from God. Even their leaders, you look through the judges, you look through the, the, the books of 1 Kings, 2 Kings. You see that once you give Israel a position of privilege and power, they begin to be just like their abusers and foreign kings. The only thing that was holding them was the grace of God and, and the fact that they weren't in the position to have that power. But God was so good. He says, rather than what is fair, which is blood for blood, blood still needs to happen. Bloodshed needs to happen, but you can kill an animal. And if you kill an animal, I will temporarily forgive you. That began with how they were delivered from Egypt, the Passover lamb. And it carried on into the sacrificial system. Isn't God so good? But he gets even better than that. That you and I look at that and you're like, well, animal sacrifice is not the same. Could you imagine? I, again, I want to be real. I don't want to mince my words. If somebody shot your child and then they came to your door and said, I'm so sorry. I'm slaughtering a lamb. The lamb is without blemish. Will you forgive me? What would you say? Would you be okay with that? As a Christian, I hope that you would, but I, I have to be honest. I might say I want more. You see, Jesus understands this. God understands this. So this whole idea of animal sacrifice for sin, that's what I mean. Atonement is not enough. Atonement is good, but it doesn't make you whole. And animal sacrifice surely does not give you the power to forgive and reconcile. So follow me on this. I'm preaching to somebody this morning. The Israelites had a system of atonement where they can look at it and say, well, God's being gracious to us because we deserve to die, but instead he's having us sacrifice animals. They understood this. They weren't dumb. Why couldn't they love their neighbor? Why couldn't they even love the Samaritans, the half-Jews? Why were they so proud? Why? Why couldn't they forgive? Why did Jonah not want to go preach to Nineveh? Because he wanted God to judge these people who had caused torture and brought torture and suffering among his people. Why do we have such a gracious God? Why isn't it enough? You see, the, the Old Testament saints had a system of atonement, but it, it was temporarily good enough, but it did not change them. It did not empower them to forgive or love or to reconcile with the nations. And I would argue that if Jesus simply died, it would be the same. The difference is the resurrection. The resurrection shows that there is life after death. The resurrection shows, once again, that aborted fetuses are in their resurrected body, fully grown and crying out, Christ is risen, so don't have hate. Christ is risen, so I've been vindicated. The child who was murdered is fully grown in his resurrected body and saying, Mom, Dad, have peace because Christ is risen and I believed in Jesus because you told me to and now I am in heaven. Anybody who was gunned down in Myanmar by an unjust military government cries out, if they are a believer, cries out in heaven saying, we've been vindicated because Christ has risen so you on earth must forgive. And reconcile because there is a God who, there, who sent his son to reconcile us to him even though we are sinners. Now I'm saying this and so now you understand why there's a connection between the baptism. Jesus had to be the perfect obedient son in order to die for our sins with the blood, the need for atonement and why John talks about blood. And now I want to talk about the Spirit's power in the resurrection. You see, what would happen on, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, every year is that the high priest would intercede on behalf of the sins of Israel, and he would go into the temple, the holiest place, where only the high priest could go into. Otherwise, they would be struck dead. Like, God would literally strike them dead. And the high priest would go in and offer a sacrifice on behalf of all the sacrifices of the Israelites who gathered at the temple. And if the high priest did anything wrong, if he had one misstep from the word of God, he would be struck dead. 
So the custom goes that they tied a bell or something around his, his foot. And every time he moved around, they would know he's still alive. If he dropped dead and the bell stopped ringing, you knew that something went wrong. The, the sacrifice wasn't accepted. But if the high priest came back out, then everybody would celebrate. That was a prototype of Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. It was a prototype. Because as he came out, everybody in Israel would breathe a sigh of relief. And they would say, God accepted our sacrifice. Because the high priest came out alive. You understand theologically that that's what happened on Good Friday. That Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, offers himself in crucifixion for our sins like he said he would die. And we are holding our breath. The angels in heaven holding their breath. The disciples hiding in fear but having heard Jesus' words holding their breath. Satan knowing what's going to happen. Holding his breath hoping that it doesn't come true. And then the morning comes. Sunday comes. And three days later our high priest comes out of the grave grave the tomb is empty he comes out alive he is our true and better high priest he comes out alive and we cry christ is risen he's risen indeed now for you to sit here this morning and to believe anything that the word of god says or anything that i say you need the power of the spirit now how has the spirit testified now we know that the spirit has testified in many ways we already mentioned that the Spirit of God came upon Jesus at his baptism. The Spirit of God was with Jesus, testifying through the miracles that Jesus performed. The, the Spirit of God was with Jesus, resurrecting from him from the dead. But John, the same John who wrote this letter of 1 John, in his Gospel of John, tells us repeatedly of the work of the Spirit. Beloved, I want to talk to you, especially if you're not yet a Christian, you, Easter is one of the times where uh, I take this. This is my favorite holiday. Uh, this is my favorite holiday of the year. Christmas is okay, but the purpose of Jesus being born a baby is simply to get to Easter. He had to be born a human in order to go to the cross a human and to be uh, resurrected. The Son of God, Son of Man, 100% God, 100% Man. Easter is my favorite holiday of the year. It is my favorite day of the year. And so I get to talk to you as a non-Christian. I get to talk to people who are no longer church, grew up in the church, but somehow on Easter, because of tradition, but I want to say by the power of the Spirit, you're listening in this morning. And I just want to talk to you. And I just want to read you some words and hopefully the Spirit helps you to understand this, 1 John 5, 6 says the Spirit is truth. And this is because the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts concerning the truthfulness of Jesus' death and resurrection. I want you to hear me read to you John 15, verse 26. Jesus says when the Helper comes. Now in my Bible, Helper is capitalized. That's the Holy Spirit. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That means that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to your heart right now. He is going to make sense for you of what I'm saying and what the Word of God says. Whatever I say, it's simply the testimony of man. But what the Spirit says to your heart is what will convert you. It is a spiritual power. John 16, 8 and 9, John repeats, he says in John chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. All right, so he's saying that many in the world do not believe in Jesus, but you're listening to me this morning. Thank you. I, that's a, I don't take that for, for granted. If you're not yet a Christian, you're hearing this this morning. I pray that John 16 would be true, that even though the world does not believe in sin or the need for atonement for sin, that the Spirit will convict you of the righteousness of Christ and the judgment that's coming and concerning sin, that you will believe in Jesus. John 16 13 and 14, dear friend, 
It says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But the Holy Spirit, whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So if you convert to Christianity, it is a miracle this morning. It is another testimony of the Spirit. There is the water. There is the blood. There is the Spirit. All three testify. It makes sense to you if the Spirit moves. And so verse 9 says, of 1 John chapter 5, our passage, verse 9, it says, if we receive the testimony of men, including preaching, the testimony of God is far greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. And that requires the power of the Spirit. And this leads me to point number, number two. So the first point was the testimony of the Son of God, the testimony of the Son of God. It is the Spirit of God who testifies, that helps you make sense of all the components, the fact that Jesus had to live a perfect life, symbolized by the fact that he didn't have to be baptized, but he was, his baptism, and everything that that, that represents. And, and he didn't have to die for our sins, but blood atonement needed to happen. And he went to the cross, even though he was sinless, to die for our sins. And he resurrected from the dead, symbolizing that the atonement was effectively received. And, God, and Christ is risen indeed. And the Spirit testifying and helping you as an unbeliever make sense of this and converting you. Now, point number two is the result of believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is a complete conversion experience. And it is a miracle. And that's point number two. We see this in verses 10 to 12. And this is going to be a little bit shorter of a point. Point number two is the result of believing in Jesus, which is eternal life. The result of believing in Jesus is eternal life. We see this in 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. It says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. That's what I mean. Pause right there. That's what I mean by the Spirit of God himself is speaking to you. The Spirit of God is speaking to you. He's going to find the right time. Don't ever apologize for when you came to Christ. Don't ever apologize for saying, I'm 80 years old. Can I still worship Jesus? I'm about to die. Can I still make the confession? Whenever the Spirit decides to open your, your eyes to see the truth, that's when He's going to do it. Okay? It says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And, it, and then it says this, and we say this with grace and love. It says, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, meaning you've made God a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son, which means the Scriptures give testimony to the Son of God. I, I gave you all of the opening illustrations to help you understand that if you're not yet a believer, God is giving you testimony. What did I mean by that? That even the pandemic causes, causes you to see that even disease brings you to a moral question. There's something evil about the pandemic and about COVID-19 that it's hard for me and you just to sit back and say, that's okay because this is just disease and everyone gets sick and this one's just a little bit badder or worse. Badder is not a word, right? Um, I think when you look at earthquakes, that's what I mean, natural disasters, and you see people die, there's something in you that cries. It's hard for you to be apathetic. Why? Because when you see bodies bleeding, dead, children from hurricanes washed up, you don't just say, oh, that was just Mother Nature, part of life. No, no, your heart breaks because it's morally evil. Right? You see that someone has to bring justice to my heart. Someone has to show me that there has to be some vindication, that this is okay, that this is going to be okay. And once again, if evil has been actually committed to you or your loved one, there's someone that has to meet the cry of your heart that says there has to be justice beyond just someone going to court and going to jail. There has to be more justice to this. And what would not only give you a satisfaction of justice, but give you the desire to go the mile to love your enemy as yourself, the way Jesus loved us, to want to reconcile, to want to see the nations, Israel, you have to see, want to see the nations come to believe in your Messiah. You see, how God would save and restore Israel is not just to save Israel, Isaiah 49, 6 says. 
It is too light a thing for the Messiah of Israel just to restore Israel. But his heart is to save the nations. That's what he told Abraham from the very beginning. It has been about blessing. Your seed will bring blessing to the families of the earth. The way that God would bring peace to Israel is by getting all of the nations that hate Israel to begin to love Israel's God and to worship Israel's God through the Messiah. That's how God works. And so you're, if you're not yet a Christian and you're wondering, that's all of the witness of this world. That witness lives in your heart. That even if nobody ever told you about Jesus, that in your heart there's something that ought to be telling you that you need justice. That this world is not right without a greater being. But yet there are many religions that offer some type of atonement. But all of those guys are dead. Buddha is dead. Siddhartha is in, in a grave. Muhammad is dead. All of these foreign gods, all of these foreign uh, false messiahs, they have not resurrected. But Christ has risen and he lives. And that should empower us. So if you're not yet a believer, I want you to understand John, he brings home the hammer in John 14, 16 to 17. And he says in John 14, 16 to 17, he says, I will ask the Father, this is Jesus, saying, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And I want you to see or hear John 14, verses 16 and 17. It says, whom the world cannot receive. So the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. He dwells with you. And will be in you. Jesus is talking to his followers. But he's also speaking to anyone who's not yet a Christian who will come to believe. And he's saying, yeah, the world's not going to see the Holy Spirit. The world is not going to see that Jesus is Messiah. The world is not going to believe that the resurrection means anything. The world is not going to believe why churches are gathered all around the world today worshiping with our hope in Christ. They're not going to understand. But you, non-Christian friend, might come to believe right now as I speak, not because of what I said, but because the spirit of truth is helping you to understand what the word of God says. That's how I came to believe. So I understand how ignorant I was. You know, I grew up in a very good church. I won't tell you what church, some of you know, but I was not a believer. I mocked Christianity. I wasn't the worst kid in the world. See, even that, I'm self-righteously defending myself. I wasn't the worst kid in the world. One of them is here this morning. He's one of my best friends. I think he was worse than me. But no, but he and I were the worst kids. So if you're a bad kid, I was the worst kid at this church. I got, it, I got us in trouble. I almost got sent home from church camp like a lot. And even bringing uh, illegal items to church camp. <laughs> if it was not for the grace of the youth pastor, I should have at least been booked for something of possession. But at the end of the day, right, how is it that I grew up in a church that taught me all the stories of the Bible and we sang the songs, yet I did not believe. Then one day, in the depravity of my own sin, my youth pastor telling me, you want help? Read the Bible. There I was reading Romans, not understanding it. And finally... In all of my sin, having my eyes opened to believe in all kinds of stuff that's difficult to believe, getting to Romans 12 and believing that not only is Romans true, but Jesus is real. And not only if Jesus is real, then the whole Bible is real. And the whole Bible is real, then I need to be a preacher. Because I spent my life mocking Christ. I need to be spending the rest of my life preaching Christ. Why would Jesus save me? Now, I tell you my testimony. It's just a testimony of man. What will save you is not that story. What saves you is the Spirit of God doing the work that he did to me as a 17-year-old in your heart right now. And so, listen to me. Listen to me when I tell you that if it wasn't for the grace of God, no amount of church attendance, Christian service, or people trying to love on me would have saved me. 
And I'm telling you, that's what this word, is say, word of God is saying. I'll read it to you again. John 14, 16-17, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot see, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you. He will be with you. That's the Holy Spirit. I pray that right now He's working in your heart. Right now He's working in your heart. That is the Spirit of God that is going to unite Christians in the days to come. I believe it. That is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no hope for the future of American evangelicalism. Just look at us. The hope is in the Holy Spirit reminding us that we have one word, one Christ, one baptism. That we are one people of God. And that's the inward testimony of the Spirit. Now go back to our text. Go back to our text because I went on a cross-reference tangent of exposition. Now back to verse 11. Verse 11 of 1 John chapter 5, it says, And this is the testimony, that inward spirit speaking to you. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in His Son. Eternal life is not just a quantity of life. It is a quality of life that begins now. And I never understood that. Growing up as a child, I always thought eternal life just meant to live forever. But I was so caught up with the struggles and pressures of the today. You know what I mean? As a, no matter how old you are, there's enough problems today that you got to deal with. And for some of you, maybe there's not problems, but there's enough enjoyment in this world. There's enough that you can consume in this world where it kind of distracts you. And that's why when someone offers you eternal life, unless you're sick, unless you're sick on a de deathbed, uh, you're not really caring. Uh, you, you've already spent a lot of money on life insurance, so you're like, why do I need spiritual life insurance? And that misunderstands the point. Eternal life is not a quantity of life. It is a quality of life. Eternal life does not just offer you, like State Farm, a good neighbor will be there. It makes you into one who loves your neighbor unto Christ. Right. So th this is the eternal life. This is the quality of life. The quality of life is what the atonement made possible. The quality of life is why we say that we have new life in Christ. It is a change that begins with the inward conversion that leads to an outward change in, in how you speak, act, your attitudes, how you love, most importantly. Verse 12, it says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And he's talking about that eternal life not just living forever. Because you miss the point when we separate eternal life from the eternal God. You understand what I mean, that eternal life is not a thing in and of itself. If you talk to me about eternal life, what is that anyway? The reason why we lost eternal life was, get this, let me give you the gospel of Genesis. There was an eternal God who's infinite that created the human race. And as long as there wasn't sin and Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with the eternal God, they had eternal life. Christ, I plead with you, confess that you are a sinner and turn to Christ. The word repent simply means to turn, turn to Christ and he will be your king, but he will also be your savior. Surrender to him. The good news is that God sent his son to die for our sins and, and he didn't remain dead, but God raised him from the dead. And so Jesus, if you surrender to him as Lord, he will be your Savior. And then it's a lifelong process of learning to believe in Jesus. You don't have to be perfect today. You don't have to think that you're good enough for religion or religious, religious belief or Christianity. Jesus was good enough for you. It's not about how good Christians are. If anything, 2020 should have revealed to you that there are plenty of Christian leaders who... Uh, it breaks my heart, right, that, that the media exposed them of, of all kinds of sins, of sexuality and moral abuse. But I will tell you this morning that none of those individuals represent why Christianity is true. We admit that Christianity is full of hypocrites, including ourselves, that we are imperfect and we struggle with sin. But what makes Christianity true is not imperfect and sin sinful Christians. What makes Christianity true is the sinless and perfect 
Christian Messiah. It's Jesus, and it's all about him this morning. So this morning, I want to beg you and offer you that Christ is why we're here. And so if you don't have Christ, please talk to us. If you want to receive Jesus, I want you all to bow with me now. If you want to receive Jesus, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And I want you to talk to us. Talk to somebody. Maybe somebody brought you. Maybe you found us on the live stream. Talk to us. Connect with us through email. Connect with us however, somehow. Talk to somebody in the car next to you safely, you know, with your mask on. And just say, I want to believe in Jesus. Right? Let's, let's, let's take the steps. If you've walked away from church and you want to come back in, Jesus has brought you here. That's why you're here. If you're listening online and if you want Jesus, we want you to have Jesus today. And I promised I would stop, but I keep going, so i got to stop. So let's pray. Will you bow with me? Father, I am out of time, but you are not. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in the hearts of those who are considering you this morning. Woe to me if I assume that it's only Christians listening this morning. If you're not yet a Christian and you want Jesus, I want you to pray this with me. Father, I am a sinner in need of grace. Please forgive me for my sin. I believe, full-hearted, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for my sins. Lord, will you change me, turn my heart to you? Father, I surrender my life to Jesus Christ as my king. Help me to live for you. If you prayed that prayer once again, I pray that you would find a church that preaches the gospel and the word of God, hopefully our church our church, if you're visiting with us, and talk to us. Now, will you all continue to join me in prayer? Father, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to love you. Teach us what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Teach us, Lord, why you've wired us a certain way to believe that there's something more to life than just what this world has to offer. Father, I pray, Lord, that as Christians, that we would experience the power of the resurrection each and every day. Lord, we love you because from the beginning, you have loved us more than we've ever known. So help us to live for you. Lord, I want to pray again for those who have gone through baptism and transferred their membership today as they have proclaimed the testimony of your reality and your truth and your son. Help us all to testify that Christ is risen today. He's risen indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.